If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 14 uh, this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through the end of the chapter, verse 20. We're picking it up where we left off last week. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and these guys will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation 14, verses 6 through 20. going to read a couple of the first verses here, then we'll, we'll follow along as we go, uh, starting in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give Him glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. Tell my message is, angels they will hear on high. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord, this opportunity to uh, dig into your word and know, Holy Spirit, that you are here to instruct us, to teach us, uh, to help us in our walks with you as you draw us closer to you, Lord. As we see your prophetic word being uh, written here, Lord, we read it and we study it, Lord. We recognize that your return is near. And, Lord, we as your church want to be ready for your soon return. So, Lord, uh, we pray that you give us understanding of this section of Scripture, but also application in our lives, that it would change us, draw us closer to our relationship with you. Uh, Bless our kids downstairs as they're being uh, taught your word as well, Lord. And finally, Father, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you especially speak to their hearts, help them see their need for you, and that they return to you today. So bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I've always loved the story about John Patton, who was a missionary in uh, the New Hebrides Islands in the 1800s. And one night, these hostile natives surrounded the mission station, intent on burning out the family and killing them. John Patton and his wife prayed during this terror-filled night that God would deliver them. When the daylight came, they were amazed to see their attackers. They were gone. None of them were there. A year later, the chief of that tribe was converted to Christ. Remembering what had happened, John Patton asked the chief what had kept them from from burning down the house and killing them. Well, the chief replied in surprise, Well, who were all those men with you there? Well, John Patton knew no men were present, but the chief said he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. Angels. The the reality is that there are spiritual beings that God created, and we call them angels. And here John begins by saying in verse 6, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Last week we looked at the 144 thousand who were singing a new song after being safely sealed in heaven. They finished their work. They had been the infantry sharing the gospel message, but now it's time to send in the air support. God is going to send out angels during this last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, what you might call, the, the described as an angelic mop-up operation, making sure the gospel goes out into all the world before His return. 
Now I believe that angels have been itching to get into this scene to preach. And the reason I believe that is that Peter says that angels have been studying, earnestly looking into the things of salvation in 1 Peter 1.12. So they've been going to school for a very long time to prepare for this ministry in Revelation 14. And here they get the chance, flying throughout heaven, spreading not only the good news to all who dwell on the earth, but at this time, but also radical warnings of judgment. Now, the truth is, there are angels all around us, and the activity of angels are always constant, even though we may not be aware of their presence. That's just the way they work, the kind of this undercover uh, ministry they have. Billy Graham's book, Angels, God's Secret Servants, he wrote, If we had open spiritual eyes, we would see not only a world filled with evil spirits and powers, but also powerful angels with drawn swords set out for our defense. John Calvin put it this way, Angels are the dispenser and administrators of the divine benefits towards us. They regard our safety, undertake our defense, direct our ways, and exercise a constant solicitude that no evil befall us. According to Pew Research, there's 68% of Americans believe that angels and demons are active in the world today. 20% say that they have had an encounter with an angel or a devil, and half of Americans believe that they are such thing as a guardian angel. They're protected by them. I've had people ask, well, how many angels are there? I've actually heard a church split up because they were arguing over how many angels you could fit on the end of a pin. Okay, truth is, we don't know how many angels there are, actually, but we know there's lots and lots of them. It's believed that since Lucifer was in charge of one-third of the angels and they fell with them, and being a head angel, you know, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that would still leave two-thirds of angels still in heaven. Now, we know there's many legions of demons going to and fro on the earth, so that tells us there's at least twice as many angels than there are demons. Again, yet you think at Christmas time, we're reminded of the, the multitudes of angels that show up, but you know, it's all about the angels at Christ's birth and, and appearing to the shepherds. I think about over in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, we're told before God's throne are a thousand thousands that minister to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Right? There's a hundred million right there standing before the Lord. Lead us to say there are plenty of angels to go around. Not only that, they are very well organized. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.22 that angels have different ranks. We read, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. But notice the rankings that are there in that verse. There's authorities and powers and different rankings of these supernatural beings. As well as we know there's different rankings of the fallen angels, of the demon world as well. Ephesians 6.12, Paul lays it out for us there. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Principalities, powers, rules of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness. We see their rankings. They're unholy angels. So, Contrary to what you may have been taught and all the details we read about angels in Scripture, not one of them is described as a fat baby with wings. I'm sorry, it's just not there. And, and another thing, when men and women die, we don't become angels. And thirdly and finally, angels do not have to earn their wings. 
Maybe you saw It's a Wonderful Life over and over and over again this last Christmas because they played play it about 20 times a day before Christmas. But, you know, poor Clarence the angel had a problem. He, he needed his wings. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. I thought, why didn't Clarence just buy himself a bell and get himself a bell and ring it until he got his time for his wings? But you see, that's not really the way angels are. That's just, just Hollywood. That's just the movies. But there are different types of angels with different jobs given to different angels. And here in chapter 14, starting in verse 6, we're going to see six angelic appearances of angels with six specific jobs to do. And the first angel is getting to do what angels have been wanting to do for a very long time, tell the world about Jesus. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to have three points this morning, three announcements. Number one, the announcement of tribulation. Number two, the announcement of triumph. And number three, the announcement of trouble. First, the announcement of tribulation. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and and springs of water. So this first angel's job is to preach the everlasting gospel. He's preaching it to those who are dwelling on the earth at this time, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. That tells us that the the gospel is universal in scope. It's not just for one group or one race or one nation. It's for everyone. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But here during the Great Tribulation, God is going to pull out all the stops and he's going to send this angel across the sky for all to see and all to hear. And yet here's what's amazing. Even with an angelic being, something you don't see every day, flying across the sky, there are still people that are not going to listen. There are still people that will refuse to believe. So as a result, as God has done in the past, it's time for judgment. And he will use his angels to execute judgment. And I think oftentimes we get the false impression about angels, especially at Christmas time because of all the, the Christmas plays and all that. While it's true that angels are ministering spirits sent to help the heirs of salvation, it's also true that they are avengers, not the Marvel type. They, they are God's avengers. And they will use their great powers they have done in the past to fulfill God's will of judgment upon the earth. I mean, think about this. God used angels in bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, eventually on Babylon and Nineveh. It's interesting. Some animals have more sense than people when it comes to listening to angels. I think of Daniel there in the lion's den. I believe that those lions didn't take a look at Daniel and say, you know what, he looks like a pretty good guy. I don't think we'll eat him. I don't think so. I think they looked at him and said, oh, it's supper time. We're going to get this guy. And then this angel appears and is standing there. In fact, Daniel says in Daniel 6.22, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. His angel, just one angel. That's all you need. Doesn't matter how many lions there were. They took... One look at this angel, singular, and said, nope, this guy's off limits. They were intimidated. Same is true for another animal we find in Scripture that feared an angel. It has to do with a donkey. Maybe you know this story. A guy named Balak hated the Israelites. He wanted to kill them, but he wanted some prophet to curse them to bring the judgment of God upon them. So Balak went on eBay and found a prophet for hire. And uh, He didn't go on eBay, but he found this guy named Balaam. 
And when you look at Balaam, he was a prophet only in the sense that he wasn't, he was in it for the prophet, i.e. for the money. So Balak says, hey, you know, could you come and curse these Israelites for me? And Balaam says, sure, but it's going to cost you. And Balak says, I'll pay what you want. So Balaam's getting ready to curse the Israelites and God comes up to him and says, don't you dare curse these people. They're my people. But Balaam, man, he wanted that money. So he saddled up his donkey, decided he was going to go curse the Israelites anyway. And while on his way, that donkey uh, is cruising along. Suddenly the donkey just stops dead in his tracks. So Balaam starts kicking the donkey in, yelling at it, and the donkey's not even moving at all. Balaam keeps kicking the thing, and, and, and the donkey takes a few more steps and then starts pushing him. The donkey pushes him up against the wall and is actually squishing Balaam's leg against the wall. And Balaam's he's just getting more angry and more angry, beating the donkey, yelling at the donkey. The Bible says that the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and the donkey said, Why are you beating me? What have I done to deserve these three beatings? Now that would have been an amazing thing to see a talking donkey. I mean, Balaam should have thought, I can make more money from a talking donkey than I can from Balak. But, but he doesn't do that. In fact, the amazing thing is, not so much that the donkey talked, but that without missing a beat, Balaam says to the donkey, I'm beating you because you're not doing what I told you to do. He's having a conversation with a donkey. I mean, do you do that all the time? I don't know. Maybe he did. But suddenly, Balaam sees what this donkey has seen all along, and this angel is standing right in front of him with a sword in his hand. And the angel says, why did you beat your donkey three times? See, the angel didn't like him beating the donkey either. angel says, I came to stop you because you were headed to destruction. But your donkey saw me, and it's a good thing that he stopped because I was about ready to kill you and spare the donkey. True story in the Bible. See, many times angels are used to warn of preceding judgment. Remember, the angels came to Lot and said, get out of town, out of Sodom and Gomorrah before it's destroyed. Well, this brings us to our second angel and his announcement of tribulation. In verse 8, look at it. He says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, angel number two is a more, more um, um, ominous message. Unlike the first angel, the second angel doesn't preach the good news of the gospel. Rather, he pronounces the bad news of judgment. And the fact that he uses this word fallen twice emphasizes the certainty of this judgment. It's fallen, it's fallen. What does it mean that Babylon is fallen? Now, we're going to dig a lot deeper into Babylon when we get to chapter 16. But according to Revelation, Babylon is going to be rebuilt. Babylon, we know, was once in Iraq. It's going to come back again. It was once the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth. In fact, it's interesting to note that two of the most often mentioned cities in Scripture are Babylon and what? Branson. Right. (laughs) No, it's Jerusalem. (laughs) Duh. That tells us Babylon and Jerusalem are, are mentioned more than any other city. And that tells us the final battle of mankind is going to happen in that part of the world, specifically around Jerusalem. And according to Revelation, Babylon is going to be revived. Now, when we talk about Babylon being revived, we're talking about a mentality. In effect, Babylon is a point of reference for, for evil. 
It refers to the entire worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom of the Antichrist at this time. Not necessarily a specific place. There may be a little background of Babylon will help us to understand what's going on here. Ancient Babylon began on the plains of Shinar where the world's first dictator established the world's first religious center. His name was Nimrod. You can find it in Genesis 10 and 11. We've just covered both chapters the last two weeks on Wednesday nights. By the way, if you're thinking of a name to name your boy that's been born, I would not recommend Nimrod. It means a hunter of men's souls in defiance of the Lord. He was a wicked man. He was the one behind the Tower of Babel, it was said there in Genesis, whose top would reach into the heavens. And here's what's fascinating. Archaeological digs around this area have revealed, in looking at these towers that were built, that they had all these astrological signs on them. So the idea here is that they were trying to connect to the stars. In fact, many centuries later, when God pronounced judgment on Babylon, he said this in Isaiah 47, 12. She labored with sorceries and astrologies from her youth, from her very beginning. That's what she was about, indicating astrology and occultism was practiced in Babylon in the very beginning of her history. When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had his troubling dream, what did he do? He called in astrologers and, and soothsayers and magicians and such. In fact, one group that he called in were described as conjurers. These would be people who would conduct seances and supposedly speak with the dead. Now, we don't call them conjurers today. We call them nuts. But, uh, no, we call them channelers. Channelers. And it's all New Age mysticism where people claim that, 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 that the people who have gone to the other side now are speaking through them. They're, they're channeling through this person, they'll say. And I understand sometimes in desperation people want to talk with their loved one on the other side and they'll go through all sorts of crazy things and they'll go to a psychic or they'll attend some seance. The problem is the backing of all that is demonic and a demon can speak through a person just as easily and give information about the person that has died and make them think that they're actually communicating with a loved one. That communication is not available with those on the other side. It's just not there. We don't see it in Scripture. Although people have tried. I think of Harry Houdini. He wanted to be buried with a telephone in his coffin. He thought he could call. You know, if he's alive. He never called. Still waiting on it, I guess. But these astrologers and, and, and soothsayers and conjurers and such, that's what they would do. And, and the idea is, in the last days, that whole mentality of that Babylon is going to be revived. But God is ultimately going to judge and bring it down that it will no longer be in existence. And it's going to happen rapidly. In fact, when we get to chapter 16, we're going to see it's going to happen in one hour. Again, we'll talk more about that when we get there. But here the second angel is announcing the destruction of Babylon that is coming. Third angel, he comes out on the scene with his announcement of tribulation. Look at verses 9 through 11. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lip. Excuse me. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. 
Now, when you read this passage about these angels, you realize that they're not these cute little cuddly creatures, but, but creatures who plead with great passion and proclaim with a loud voice and preach vehemently for mankind to turn from their sin and follow Christ. Why is that? Because they know that hell is real. The angel warns the world that all who take and wear the mark of the beast will suffer eternal torments without rest or relief, everlasting, never-ending torment. Sadly, there are people today that say, well, hell is, is not a little place, or, or it's not going to last for eternity. You know what? Then you've not read your Bibles if you think that. This angel cries with a loud voice, warning people to reject the mark of the beast because they know it's not like that. Listen to the description here of, of a person in hell. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. In other words, it's going to go on and on. Three things to learn from this description of hell. Hell is real. Hell lasts forever. And hell is going to be incredibly horrible. It's described in Scripture and other places as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of outer darkness. If we put it together, we have a place that is completely absent from any light whatsoever. Total darkness. Miserably hot. Torment never stops day or night. No rest for eternity. And there's be crying and a gnashing of teeth. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hell is a real place. A place of torment that goes on forever and ever and it will be the, the destiny of all those who refuse to follow Christ. And not believing in hell won't make it one degree colder in hell or your time there one minute shorter. But you know, here's the thing, the subject of hell, we don't actually hear that much people talking about it today. And I think there's really a lack of emphasis on preaching and warning people about hell. We live in a day and an age where, and, and where more and more churches approach it as to not really mention sin and no accountability and certainly don't mention hell. We don't, we don't want to offend anybody. But listen, that's not God's heart. In fact, he sends a special angel here to proclaim this message and plead with the people not to take the mark of the beast, not to seal their fate. Why? Because God doesn't want to see anyone in hell. Listen, I would rather offend people talking about hell and the fact that people are going to end up there if they don't receive Christ than to preach a hundred messages that make people feel good about themselves and walk out of here week after week thinking they're right with God, thinking they're on their way to heaven when in reality they're on their way to hell. See, the problem in some churches today is they're not presenting the fundamentals of the gospel message. That we're all sinners. We need a Savior. That unless you repent, turn from your sin and follow Christ, you will end up in hell. You will have to pay the penalty for your sin. Listen, church, we need to talk about hell. I'd rather have someone upset with me and take the risk of offending them if, they're mean, if it means that they're going to examine the condition of their hearts. And my prayer is that when they hear it, their conscience will be plagued with them all week long until they get saved. And we need to share with people our hearts and our souls by telling them, I care enough about you to share the truth with you. There is a real place called heaven, and I want you there. But understand, there's a real place called hell, and that's the last place I'd want you to be. You need to receive Christ. Because God desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. 
So it's during the tribulation God is going to send this angel bearing this word of warning. Don't take the mark or else. And then uh, those who take the mark, which signifies worshiping of the Antichrist and the system, will be eternally judged and tormented. No second chances. No, I changed my mind. That's a final, uh, God's final call to a world deluded by Satan and sin. Brings us to our second point, number two, an announcement of triumph. Look at verses 12 and 13. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Now, except for the 144,000 that we looked at last week who are protected with a special seal of God upon their foreheads, the rest of those that refuse to take the mark of the beast, they're going to be put to death. Most of them. What John is saying right now is, is to write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In other words, this is saying that in death, it will instantly bring forth a blessing in your life. Triumph. Now, we certainly know as believers today, that's very true. In fact, Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. And it will be for those during the tribulation period who come to faith in Christ. That death will instantly take them away from the wrath of God and instantly place them in the presence of the Lord. Let me tell you about the presence of the Lord. Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Man, that sounds an awful lot better than sticking around and, and going through the remainder of the Great Tribulation, standing up against the, the beast, the Antichrist. I like the way John Phillips puts this on, on his commentary in Revelation. He says, I'll make you suffer, screams the beast. You'll make us saints, reply the overcomers. I'll persecute you to the grave, roars the beast. You'll promote us to glory, reply the overcomers. I'll blast you, snarls the beast. You'll bless us, reply the overcomers. That's the patience of the saints. You'll find rest. Now, I believe this is another good proof text for the pre-trib rapture, pre-tribulation rapture. There are those who say uh, that they'll be going through at least part of the great tribulation, but we'll be raptured out of here before it gets really, really bad. And that view is called the, the mid-trib rapture, or pre-wrath view. But I think if the rapture did happen here, the message would be different. It wouldn't be blessed are you who die in the Lord. Rather, it would be blessed are you who ain't in there because there's going to be a rapture at any moment now before it gets too bad. But John here is told to write in verse 13, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Listen, we're all going to die, but we want to make sure we die in the Lord. Now, here are three things that you need to know about people who are presently in heaven and why this is going to be a blessing for these end times believers who will die during the Great Tribulation. Once in heaven, they're going to experience three things from this verse here in verse 13. Number one, they're blessed. We know blessed means, oh, how happy they'll be the dead. You know, it's interesting. When Paul went to heaven and he came back to earth and he tried to put it into words, he could only find one word that to help to describe it. He says, I can't describe it. There are not enough words. The only one word I can say, paradise. It, it was paradise. Now, what's interesting about the word paradise, it means a royal garden of a king. Think about the most beautiful garden you've ever seen in your life, the most amazing sight you've ever laid your eyes on. That's the picture that Paul had that he looked out of heaven. He said, I don't have words to describe it. All I can say is, it's paradise. 
I love what the late Adrian Rogers, a wonderful man of God and pastor who said this in his book of Revelation. He said, Consider the artistry that God has put into heaven. The God who sculpted the wings of the butterfly, blended the hues of the rainbow, and painted the meadows with daffodils is the same God who made heaven. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be beautiful. That's why they're blessed by being there. Next, we see that they are resting in verse 13. They will rest from their labors. I'm all for that. I'm all for resting. Now, I don't like to sit around and do nothing, but we should, you know, take some time off. Even Jesus took breaks. Even he took his disciples and said, let's come away for a while and rest. I like what Vance Havner said. He said, come apart and rest for a while or you'll just plain come apart. And we need that. It's important to rest. It's important to recharge but then you're recharged and ready to go out and continue to, to serve the Lord. Uh, listen, heaven is not going to be an eternal nap. Great, I'm just going to sleep for a couple millennial and I'll be good. No, it's not going to be that way. We'll have new bodies. We'll have things to do. We'll be you know, bodies that don't need recharging. Actually, the word rest here, though, means rejuvenation or refreshment. They're, they're resting from all their labor or literally their tolls, their, their weariness, their troubles, no more tribulation. It's all over for them. It's all gone. No more tears. You know, when we as Christians think about what's waiting for us in heaven, it should cause us not to have any fear of death at all. That's why I think those who believe in reincarnation, man, they got a bum rap. <laughs> who wants to come back? Been there, done that. Heaven's where it's at. Now, don't understand me. You know, when a friend of mine or relative of mine passes away, when they die, if they, even if they're a Christian dies, I weep. But I don't weep for them. I weep for myself because I'm going to miss their company. I'm going to miss the, the person who died. But they're in heaven, eternal bliss before the throne of God, resting and rejoicing and rejuvenated and refreshed. On top of that, the third thing we see in, in verse 13 is they're rewarded. It says, and their works follow them. In other words, their reward is waiting for every believer, even for that small thing that you did, little thing that you did for the Lord. It's going to be noted. God keeps meticulous records. Jesus even said in Matthew 10, 42, if you give a cup of cold water to the least of my followers, you're going to be rewarded. You see, this is the reward of the believer that we will have our works follow us. So let me ask, what kind of works do you have that are going to follow you? What will they say at your memorial service? What things would, would we note? Perhaps you heard the story about the three men who were at a mutual friend's funeral, and they heard great things about their friend. It was really a beautiful eulogy. And at the reception afterwards, the three of them are all sitting together and all talking about it. Well, one guy says to them, wow, that was really beautiful. You know, what would you guys like to be said when you guys die? Well, the first one said, well, I hope they say that I was a devoted of my life to, to my medical practice. I hope they say that I was a great doctor, that, that, that I saved many lives. The second one said, I spent a lot of time with my family and really raised my kids well. I hope they say what a good father and husband I was. The third one says, I hope they say, look, he's moving. I like that one. You know, when you're doing a memorial service for a person, you never hear about how much money they had. You never hear about their bank account. You, you never talk about how hard they worked and what they did with their business. It's always personal. 
Stories about family and friends and merciful, sacrificial, loving, kind things that they did. Listen, if you don't have any works following you, you have to wonder if you're really a true believer. Works, works don't save a man, but there are good evidence that you're saved. We're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. But at the same time, faith that does not produce works is a faith that frankly is not working. We want real saving faith so our works will follow us in that final day. Finally, our last point, verses 14 through 20, an announcement of judgment. Look at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. On our last point, as we peer into the future, we see through the Apostle John's prophetic words, Jesus coming back on a white cloud with a sickle in his hand to reap the harvest of the earth. It is a picture of that judgment. When Jesus came the first time, in the flesh, he came as a sower, a sower of the seed, the good news of the gospel, to give his life as a ransom. But the people rejected that seed. They rejected the word of God. They rejected Jesus and instead believed the lies of Satan. Christ is now coming back the second time as the reaper, bringing judgment to what's left to the sinful world. Now this brings us to our last three angels. Look at angel number four, verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. According to this passage, it would seem that there is going to come a point in the tribulation when salvation is no longer possible. 144,000, they've been called to heaven. The angels have made their proclamation. Now comes the separation between those who became Christians in the tribulation and those who didn't, between those who took the mark of the beast and those who did not. Now understand, this all leads up to the battle of Armageddon that will take place when the Antichrist gathers the forces together of the world to do battle against Jesus Christ. That will be Satan's one last attempt to stop the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ upon the earth. We'll get to that Chapter 19, when the Antichrist gathers all his remaining followers and his armies to Israel. But, but here is the announcement, this is coming. Judgment is coming. And the angel coming out of this temple, God is saying, go get him. You know, this evening, the Chiefs will be playing, and I hope, I'm convinced, winning against the Buffalo Bills. I hope. That's right. When Patrick Mahomes passes that ball to Tyree Kill, and Tyreek, that human cheetah, runs for 90 yards for a touchdown. Guess what? Chiefs fans are going to go, yeah, go, go, yeah, yeah, go, yeah. Listen, when our chief shepherd appears, about to bring judgment to this wicked, wicked world, we know at least three angels are coming out from the temple. And I'm sure many are staying back going, yes, go, go, it is time, yes. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Why? Because the earth is ready. It's ripe. It's ready for judgment. It's time. They're excited to see sin finally destroyed, evil finally destroyed. Boy, aren't we close when we look at the condition of our world today. It's ripe. It's rotten. It's overripe. It's withering. It's dry. And that marks the condition of what the world would be like, as the Bible says, in the end. And the only response God could have is to put a sickle of judgment because it's dead, it's dry, it's withered. 
These terms imply that it's useless, nothing left to do but harvest the earth. It's time to reap, said the angel. And that is what we see next, angel number 5 and number 6. They come on out. Now, verses 14 through 16, I believe, speaks of a harvest of grain, referring to the parable of the wheat. You can look it up later in tares in Matthew 13. The second harvest here speaks of the harvest of grapes. Look at verse 17 through 20. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Second harvest here, all that's left now is judgment. First harvest, there's a separation, the wheat from the tares. The second harvest, no separation. You know, in harvesting grapes, people at that time, they would leave their villages, they would go out into the grape fields, and they'd be picking and, 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 and plucking and putting them in their buckets, taking them to the wine press. And they would take all those grapes uh, that they would have, and they, they would not separate them. They would not say good grape, bad grape. They just throw them all in, all these grapes, uh, uh, you know, in, in the cistern. The cistern was made out of rock with a channel or a hole that the juice would drain through and then collected in vats and people would, would just jump and dance all over the grapes. If you like I Love Lucy, you remember that episode of her and the grapes all over her face and everywhere. Understanding and stomping grapes, at that time the juice would be spattering all the way up several feet all over the clothes, all over the rocks and surrounding places where these things were being treaded down upon. That's the idea of this harvest here. It's not a separation. It's just a total wipeout, a total threshing, a total consummation of the wicked. Again, I believe this is speaking of the Battle of Armageddon when Jesus destroys the Antichrist, his army. We'll read that the blood will be flowing. We read that the blood will be flowing even to the horse's bridle four feet high for 1,600 furlongs, which is 180 miles long. That's a lot of blood. But imagine all the evil people in the world gathered in one place and, and just that, that happening. You think, well, that's just one verse. You know, I, I don't really I think that's true. Listen, listen to Joel. Joel prophesied of this day in Joel 3, verse 12 and 13. Let the nations be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down. For the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. We're told in Revelation 19.15 that Jesus himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Listen, it's not going to be a pretty sight. And let me tell you this, God is in no way apologizing for these events that will take place. And neither will I. We need to face up to the facts of what's going on here. Sin is an awful thing. Sin is in the world. And you and I are sinners. And the only remedy for sin is, and there is the redemption that Christ offers when he shed his blood on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. You and I deserve this judgment. Our only escape is to accept the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. In fact, the Bible asks an important question in Hebrews 2.3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Escape what? Escape judgment. Tribulation is judgment. The only way out is to accept Christ. 
You can call it escapism if you want to. But listen, when the house is on fire, I'm looking to get out. I'll go through the door. I'll go through the window. Any way that I can escape. And God has only provided one way of escape, and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Yes, judgment must come to those that reject Jesus Christ. Because if God is just and He is, there must be judgment. That's the message that our society needs to hear today. Let me tell you, there's nothing that will straighten out your life more than knowing that our God is a holy God. That our Lord Jesus, He is righteous. And He's not going to tolerate sin in our lives. I want to close with this. During this time, God has pulled out all the stops to get the gospel out. Using angels to get the job done. But after it's through, judgment is coming. Though God has dealt with man and grace for so long, He will finally put down those implements of grace and deal in wrath and judgment. It's over now. It's harvest time. It's time to move on to a whole new way of doing things. So what does that mean for us as believers in this time of grace? Two things, and then we'll close. Grace and justice. First, God's grace gives us freedom to choose righteousness. Let me say that again. God's grace gives us freedom to choose righteousness. See, with the gift of free choice comes accountability. Adam and Eve were created with the capacity to obey or disobey. And it's the same Holy Spirit that gives to us the ability to choose righteousness instead of wickedness. Paul calls us as believers in Christ to use his freedom in the service of God, not self. And we're given a warning in Romans 6, 12, and 13. Therefore, do not let rain, sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In order to be an example of Christ and see people come to faith in Christ, we need to be, uh, uh, not allow sin to come into our lives and obey its lust. Secondly, God's justice holds every person accountable. God's justice holds every person accountable. Many Christians believe that because they are eternally saved by grace, they are no longer subject to the scrutiny of God. It's like the couple that was driving and the husband was going a little bit too fast and he was pulled over by the police and the man rolled down the window and the officer said, I'd like to see your driver's license. So the guy pulled out his license and gave it to the officer and, and the man, hoping that he would find some grace and some leniency uh, from the officer, said to the officer, did you notice that yesterday was my birthday? The policeman looked at the card and said, well, yes, I did. In fact, yesterday was the day that your license expired. And he gave him two tickets, one for speeding and one for an expired license. Listen, many Christians believe that because they are eternally saved by grace, they're no longer subject to the scrutiny of God. Listen, that's, that's a, a distortion of the biblical teaching regarding Christians and judgment. It's true. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, and believers will be spared from the suffering, the wrath of God during the Great Tribulation. But Scripture is clear. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So divine examination is coming. So let me ask, are you using your freedom in Christ to live a life free of sin and from sin's control? Are you doing all you can for the glory of God with the time that we have left? 
Remember, Jesus said in Revelation 2.23, I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I give to each one of you according to your works. See, either one of these points will affect your decision, uh, or rather will affect your salvation. But making these improper choices in our lives could affect somebody else's ability to choose Jesus. They may look at your life and say, well, why, wanna, why would I want to be a Christian? Look at the way that person is. So as we close, are we doing what God's called us to do? Are we looking for every opportunity we can to share the gospel? Are we living lives pleasing to the Lord as to not damage our witness for Christ? Listen, I tell you, I would love to see, as I shared last, last week, I would love to see a gospel pandemic. But the gospel is just being spread throughout the world like we've never seen before. Let's not leave it up to this final angel. Let, 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 let's go for it. Share with folks the truth about heaven. Share with folks the truth about hell. Tell them if they don't receive Christ, they have to pay for their own penalty of sin, which is hell. But tell them that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's why he uses angels. That's why he uses you and me to get the message out. Let folks know that the reason you're pestering them day and night, week by week, to come to church, to get involved in Bible study, is for them to know God. Folks, I believe we have a very small window of opportunity left to get out there and share the hope that lies within us. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's the message of these angels. That's the, mes- that's the message of the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you've, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't see how you can walk out of here without wanting one after you see what we just read. Come up and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible, let you know what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I know so often I love to, to teach from sections of your word that talk about your grace and your love and, and the hopes of heaven. And, and I love to talk about your peace and, and, and just the, the, the things that just really bless our hearts, Lord. But we take the whole counsel of your word, God, together. And we want to, Lord, because that's what you've given to us. And we see here, Lord, that judgment is coming upon this earth. And so, Lord, with the time that we have left, we're asking as a church. Lord, I don't, I'm not sure how, how to do all of this, Lord, but we want as a church to be that witness for you, to be bold in our witness, to have opportunities to share your gospel like we've never had before, personally and as a church corporately. Lord, give us direction, give us wisdom. Lord, open up divine appointments that we can share with people the hope that we have. And Father, help us not to be afraid of sharing the truth about hell. Holy Spirit, give us the words to share when we, when we have those opportunities come up. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. Thank you. Thank you for your grace and mercy for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song.